Welcome to Digital Momentum. I'm Mike Ryan, Head of Retail Insights at Smarter E-Commerce. This show offers conversational interviews with leaders in digital marketing, digital transformation, and e-commerce growth. Today I'm joined by Matthew Strelitz, Director of Performance Marketing at the Miami Heat. Matthew's digital marketing background stretches over 10 years with experience in branding, social media, and performance channels. He is analytical and strategic in everything he touches. We connected on LinkedIn a while back and had some great conversations about his work and the really inspiring e-commerce story of the Miami Heat. I'm thrilled to bring him on this show. So, let's get into it. So, we are joined today by Matthew Strelitz, Director of Performance Marketing at the Miami Heat. Thank you, Matthew, for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be joining your, your podcast. Uh, absolutely, a pleasure of mine. Would you get us started with a quick intro, intro, Matthew? What are your skills? What themes interest you? Yeah. Um, so I am a South Florida native. Um, I'm on my fourth season with the Miami Heat, which is uh, in its infancy compared to a lot, of other, uh, a, lot, a lot of other employees who've been with the organization since day one or 20 plus years. So I'm still a new guy, even though this is my fourth season. When it comes to skills, you know, I've been in the paid digital space for seven or eight years. And I really try to, especially when I'm talking to people who are not in our world, I try to kind of describe what I do as diagnosing the business's opportunities or challenges, and then leveraging the digital marketing channels, the toolkit we have access to, to help them thrive in those circumstances. So it's a bit vague, but it really covers how I approach my job. I, I really like that idea of a diagnostic model and yeah, selecting the right, the right tools. That's a cool way of describing it. So yeah, as you mentioned, you've been in digital marketing for a while. And the first part of that experience was agency side. So could you tell us a bit about your experiences at Zimmerman and RBB? What kind of work did you do? Or how did that change over time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a bit, um, you know, I think, I think if you ask me that, Five years ago, three years ago, and today, you'd get probably three different answers. So you're getting with the most hindsight. And, and so I'll, I'll start with Zimmerman. Zimmerman is a, a retail agency. Um, that was the first, the first job I had out of university. And it was really the perfect environment for me to learn um, and cut my teeth in. Because they're a retail agency, they don't hang their hat on creative, um, but rather results. So you know, not the output, but the outcome. Um, and I always really admired that high degree of accountability that they ascribe to marketing, uh, because a lot of other agencies, as you know, I'm sure in your experience in this world as well, they kind of focus more on what the campaigns look like rather than what they do for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that that maybe at the time I didn't uh, admire and recognize as much as I do now, um, but that really has shaped kind of how I approach my world and 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 work, which of course performance marketing. So it was a really good place for me to begin and kind of set the the kind of cadence for for how I approach marketing and and how I approach the problem solving side of things. And I'll be honest, I also that's where I learned firsthand how soul sucking the agency world can be. Looking at some of the leaders, where you know I would say I want to be in that person's seat in ten years and five years. Um, you look around and not everyone's very happy. Some people are a bit a bit tired, a bit you know there, there's some misery, stress, anxiety. And and I've I've always been a very positive and laid back person. So you know sometimes you learn what you like about things and you learn what you don't like about things, and both are very valuable. And I think you know that that was a big learning experience for me is really just understanding what environment do I thrive in professionally, socially, and what kind of work really you know do I enjoy doing. And and I would say RBB I uh, joined there four years after Zimmerman. RBB was a, a big difference. It was a lot. It's still an agency. It was a lot smaller. Um, smaller staff uh, didn't have the roster of you know the all national household name brands like Zimmerman did, so a lot less glamorous. We didn't have foosball tables and you know unlimited snacks and and all that fun stuff. Uh, but in many ways, it was a lot more my vibe and frequency. That place is run by three incredibly smart and accomplished and compassionate women, and I learned a lot about what good leadership looks like in my three and a half years there internally to build you know a culture, but also client agency relationship. And so, so I, I had a really great experience in, in both organizations. Um, both taught me a lot about the agency world and, and really prepared me for this next stage in my career in-house in sports marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to come back to this topic about leadership and, and culture later on. And right off the bat, I think that's interesting. Like it just, 
I felt the echo when you were talking about um, the challenge or the maybe lack of fit that you felt in in one agency environment. Um, yeah, maybe a bit of a grind with a, a portfolio of clients or, or mm-hmm. very demanding clients. And then you were talking about the, the the long tenure at the Miami Heat that people have, where even after four years, you're you still feel new there. I mean, I think it speaks to something that the Heat is doing well if they you know to have these long tenure employees. So that's really interesting to share that. And I also wonder if having you know a ra- an exposure to a range of clients helps you develop that diagnostic mindset that you mentioned right right at the start. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I would say in in both environments, RBB and Zimmerman, it it forced me to you know stress induces growth, and there's positive stress, and of course there's also negative stress. But yeah. that positive stress has kind of kind of taught me how to in a in a very quick moving environment to be able to embed myself in a client's circumstances, um, ask the right questions, be a very good listener, um, a good communicator, and and really understand what they want, what they think they want, and then maybe present to them what they might be missing uh, from the situation. Because let's face it, especially when it comes to digital marketing, some people might come to you asking for Facebook ads, PPC, SEO, and that's not the complete treatment that they might need or that is best for their, for their brand or company. Um, so that, you know, that, that certainly helped me develop the, that muscle memory of just being able to jump in, ask the questions and, and work with the client to, to kind of collaboratively come at what is the best case scenario for them. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think active listening and collaboration, these are skills that are really will suit you well in any kind of an environment, particularly in, you know, the remote disruption that we faced and so on, those things became maybe even more important. But Matthew, I want to ask you, what brought you to the Miami Heat? And how, how was that transition then from life agency side to in-house? So the Heat, prior to my joining, they dipped their toes into paid digital. And they saw some exciting results with that. And the gentleman who was uh, leading that charge for them took a job at Facebook uh, to head up you know, some of their sports marketing partnerships, ironically. And that's when they reached out to me and, and told me about the opening. And I have to be honest with you. So I'm from South Florida. I, I love basketball. I still play as much as I can um, and have followed the Heat since day one. It's always been my team. So throughout the entire interview process, I was completely starstruck. I wasn't <laughs> sure, do I tell them I'm a Heat fan? Do I downplay it? Like I didn't know how to handle it. And, and so I was like giddy throughout it uh, because of my fandom. And then, you know, of course, I had a healthy dose of imposter syndrome too. Uh, like many of us do as we walk around our careers and and uh, try to make the most of, of our circumstances. So between the two, the entire experience was completely surreal. I mean, I remember calling my dad and saying, someone from the heat viewed my profile on LinkedIn. Like, I was just so excited. And, you know, four years later, it's, it's, uh, it's a fantastic environment to operate in. I think I was, I probably hyped up the transition from agency side to client side a little bit more in my mind than it really, you know, ended up uh, kind of playing out. I was, you know, I, I recognized the value of being in an agency, solving different types of problems, working with different types of clients, having exposure to many verticals and, and being able to, you know, keep my kind of like sharpen my sword with selling with, you know, execution, highly organized, that communication skills we were talking about. I was always very conscious that like, look, when I go to the client side, I want to make sure I don't go to, I don't want to be the digital guy. I don't want to be the only person in a room who actually knows what's happening in digital. And because you can really atrophy and kind of fall behind if you're in an environment that's a bit stagnant from a digital perspective. So that was something I was conscious of. And and I remember when I was asking questions in the interview, that was something I was really focused on. And, and it's a big reason why I joined the Heat was because of the people there, the level of not just expertise, but intelligence, um, really smart people, and a true appetite for innovation. You know, not, not just putting that on their, on their website um, or putting it in their kind of internal cultural mantra, but, but demonstrating it from top down and making space for it, um, you know, giving room for failure, healthy failure, trying things because it seems like a good idea. And trusting the people in in place to you know to execute. So the minute I, I caught wind of that, it was you know I, I knew this was going to be the place for me. Um, and the transition was was really seamless. You know they they trust me. Um, I have a degree of autonomy that allows me to kind of do what I want to do, and 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 of course ensure it ladders up to the business and plug into the different parts of the business. Um, and my favorite thing about it is, 
you know, going to, to client side is that I've really, or, or in-house, I've really been able to, you know, transition from rapid thinking to deeper thinking and spending more time on, on the experimentation, on strategy, on analysis, um, and really, you know, getting, getting better work out of myself um, and becoming closer with our customers, closer with the business and just understanding everything in a much deeper way, which of course as marketers is really valuable for us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've just got that that proximity and that level of exposure and consistency. Just taking the time, really, over over the years, and that's so important. Um, I love this story about being starstruck, just because you know I I mentioned to a couple of people like our chief client officer at our organization. I think I told you this story before, but he. He was like, "Oh, the Miami Heat. Yeah, I mean, I, I went, I went to a game um, when I was on honeymoon with my wife. And the last episode that I recorded, I have to check if it aired yet or not. But, but I was speaking with uh, Mihai Popescu, head of digital marketing at Esprit, and I, I told him after that I'd be talking to you, and he was like, 11 out of 10 excited. And <laughs> yeah, so the, there is this, there is this fandom and this emotional connection, which I think is so great." And, and I think that feeds, it sounds to me like that feeds into your motivation. And then from what I know about you, you're anyway, a very motivated guy, but also to hear about these environmental factors, because uh, motivation can only take you so far in that, that war against atrophy, for example, you know, it's just so valuable to have sparring partners, be surrounded by uh, people that you can really exchange with and challenge each other. And and, and just yeah, everything that it sounds like such a such a top culture with the uh, the room for experimentation and failure and the the autonomy that you have that would, just sounds like a really inspiring place to work. Yeah, I mean, I've when you were talking about the uh, the motivation, and you know, I've always been uh, an analytical thinker, a, a problem solver, and and really fascinated by human psychology, like just human behavior, mm-hmm. really fascinated. Uh, even predating my interest in marketing, I was reading books about human behavior, consumer psychology, and then that kind of took me into marketing, which is you know the the other end of psychology is engaging with it. And so so that was you know marketing was very much uh, because of those those different attributes that I possess was very much uh, an area of motivation for me, and I, I found myself loving it. But then you know my other life love and love of life it, love in life is basketball. Um, so to be able to position that as the subject matter, like you said, just amps up the the motivation factor. That's really great. So maybe you could walk us through the Miami Heat's e-commerce model in broad strokes, because we've talked about that a little bit before, and I find it totally interesting and and also really inspiring. So how how does the Heat's approach to e-commerce differ from the way that other teams are typically bringing merchandise to fans? Yeah, so I would say um, there are two two points of differentiation um, between us and most other sports teams, and I'll speak about North American professional sports teams because that's who's in my purview. And and so number one, a lot of teams outsource a lot of their work, and we don't. So like I mentioned, that that appetite for for innovation is not just in you know the digital space with technology and and campaigns, but also from an organizational perspective. Um, so all of our, you know, a lot of our product design, photo shoots, creative and content, um, ordering, fulfillment, e-commerce, digital mart, like all of that is in-house, which is certainly unconventional. Whenever I'm talking to, you know, our partners, Facebook, Google, et cetera, I always try to remind them, like, don't think of us as a sports team. Think of us as an e-commerce company who happens to have, you know, a, a, a sports franchise attached to them. So we're very much uh, constructed with a, an in-house focus on e-commerce. Which, which has, of course, a lot of its benefits. So I would say that's number one is that, you know, we have the in-house capabilities, which, which presents a lot of opportunity and upside for us uh, to really activate. And then the second point of differentiation is that we have our own in-house apparel brand called Court Culture. And, you know, not everyone is a Jersey person, especially once you hit a certain age, the jerseys kind of go to the back of the closet unless you're going to a game and, and they're a steep price point. So, you know, with our Court Culture line, we're able to, Go to more lifestyle apparel and and just you know really um, reach a broader audience, uh, establish more broad appeal, um, and and it allows us to really lean into more more aspects of the brand than just basketball itself. 
Um, and then from just a, an operational perspective, you know, we enjoy greater margins from our court culture line than from our, you know, for example, Nike apparel. We're a lot more agile with it. And, and we can fulfill our commitment to more inclusive sizing. We can cater to a, a wider audience. So it gives us a lot more control over the, the opportunity and where we choose to kind of lean into it. And an interesting little anecdote with regard to agility, we have a, a sort of series of t-shirts that's called Moments Tees. And the idea is after a major moment happens on the court, we very, very quickly activate on it from a retail, uh, retail perspective. So the most recent one, like there were ones where Dwayne Wade would hit a buzzer beater shot. The next morning, you can buy the t-shirt online or even that night, maybe. Um, the most recent one was during the finals run we made last year in the, the famous NBA bubble. Um, there was a moment where one of our younger stars, Tyler Hero, he, he had a, a, a big play and he kind of snarled a bit. He had a bit of a, a, a smirky snarl on his face and, and, you know, the perfect shot was taken and it kind of, it went, it kind of blew up on the internet. Everyone was talking about it. And the yeah. Tyler Hero snarl tee was one of our top sellers for the next six months. And, wow. and it was just that ability to capture that moment from the game, recognize that that's the kind of moment that breaks the internet, and then to translate that to the retail opportunity in lightning fast time with that agility, you know, so that we could really just kind of capture that moment and allow people to bask in it and, and memorialize it and, and keep it in their wardrobe and wear it on their chest with pride. Yeah, that's, that's definitely um, kind of a superpower to have uh, relative to maybe the way that other operating models are set up. Yeah, maybe we can talk about a couple of these points a little more. Like you, you were mentioning with the the core culture that it's getting beyond, like out of the scope of just basketball. So that that's something that I understand about about the Heat is that while most other sports sports franchises might operate um, with the team as a kind of a brand and the player as a as a kind of a brand, you also highlight Miami as a brand and you recognize the the power that that Miami has. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's um I walked in to that environment. That was already happening uh 4 years ago when I got here. That was a a conscious decision, an intentional decision made. Uh I think credit goes to our CMO, VP of marketing, VP of retail. I don't know who exactly, but probably a collection of smart people seeing seeing the opportunity there and just kind of being pioneers. It, it's quite simple, you know, it's to think to think about like, all right, well, you're the Miami Heat. There's, there's two sides to that brand. There's the Miami and there's the Heat. So it's simple, but it's also brilliant. I mean, you think of basketball jerseys, you think of Bulls, Lakers, you think of the team, you know, not the city. And by putting Miami as Miami first, Miami as the brand, as you can imagine, it opens up the product appeal to not just basketball fans. If you've been to South Florida, if you've enjoyed your South Beach, you know, getaway weekend, if you have any attachment to the brand, uh, or sorry, to the to the city, then we have products that are right for you. And it's it goes even further than just putting Miami on our jersey versus heat. Um, a lot of our merchandise, especially court culture, a lot of our merchandise that you find on our store has overtones of Miami and undertones of basketball. Whereas, of course, the opposite is typically the conventional approach. And so at the end of the day, you don't have to be a basketball fan to to love our products, which as a e-commerce marketer is music to my ears. Yeah, definitely. Anything you can do to to widen that that customer base and um, extend the demographics. So, would you say uh, like Miami is famous for for these Vice jerseys? Um, would you say that that fits into that strategy broadly? Yeah, I think it's the the crescendo of that strategy. The the yeah. most highlighted example of it. I mean, yeah. Could you walk us through that concept and the campaigns around that a little bit? Yeah. So um, the backstory there is uh, the Adidas had the licensing agreement with the NBA for for the jersey production for the years before I arrived. And when they when Nike took over, one of their one of their objectives was to of course sell more jerseys. And if your team has had the same colors and the same logo for the last you know thirty years, and you kind of have the same players for the last five years, there's not much reason to buy a new jersey. So one of the initiatives they came up with was called City Edition which ultimately gives teams the power to deviate creatively from their core creative focus and their core brand and just go wild and come up with an alternate jersey that is based on the culture, the essence of the city. And the first year we did this, we came up with the, the Vice City Edition jerseys. 
and they completely leaned into the 1980s, you know, South Beach, Miami nostalgia vibe. And so it's going to be your, the colors officially are blue gale, which is like a, a very vibrant blue laser fuchsia, which sounds as vibrant as the name. And, and of course, white and black were incorporated into those as well. And we had a, a five, five different installations of it over the course of four years, frankly, one better than the next. I mean, it just kept, it just kept going and going and going. And, and it really, again, it, it had Miami as, as the, the kind of marquee um, on the front of the jersey as opposed to heat. And from, a, from an apparel perspective, the ways we could spin that off really just, it just blew the doors open because there's really only so much you can do with, with black, red, and gold um, and white. And there, there truly is so much you can do with these beachy, summery, fun colors, um, which are certainly eye-catching and, and pop off the screen when you're walking down the street, everyone notices it. And it just puts you in that beachy environment, it makes you feel like you're in Miami Beach, South Beach, which is just so fun. Um, so yeah, that, that was really the, the best example and the, the greatest manifestation of this idea of Miami as the brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really beautiful jerseys and I think it's so cool how that came about. Actually, we were talking, we were talking earlier, um, before we started recording, you were saying that it's pretty cool. Also the way that, that the company produced this design, would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, it was really it was internal. I mean, a lot of the times that jerseys are designed, there's collaboration with Nike. And my understanding is that this design really came from our in-house team. Um, I'm sure there were you know, some adjustments and editorial oversight uh, in collaboration with Nike, but this was really a homegrown design. Um, in fact, for the, the nerdy Miami Heat fans, if you look at the insignia, the Miami on the front, it actually is the same font as I'm going to get yelled at for calling it a font. There's probably a fancier word, but it's the same uh, like font as what in the original Miami Arena, which is no longer. That's how it said it on the front, Miami Arena. And the word Miami, the way it was kind of designed, ended up being... So it had a lot of Miami Heat nostalgia from the, the late 80s, early 90s, but it, and it very much was kind of living in the, the 1980s uh, Miami vibe. And, and yeah, so that was, that was something that, you know, if you're a Heat fan, you'll remember that from the original arena. Um, and if not, it just, it just feels, it just, again, it just feels like Miami. But yeah, that was something that was very much homegrown within our content and creative department um, and just kind of bubbled up to the top and, and took off. That's an awesome story. So let's talk about 2020. Um, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so, E-commerce is, or let's say, yeah, these these jerseys and merchandise, these are one revenue stream for the heat. And you've got other revenue streams like ticket sales, of course. And I mean, what happened? Because it seemed like 2020 was a very challenging time for professional sports um, with the pandemic and uh, everything that, that went along with that. Couldn't have these crowds anymore and so on. So what happened for the heat in 2020 and how did e-commerce play out during the pandemic or how did digital channels play out for the heat in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really exciting. And in retrospect, it was chaotic in the moment, but it was exciting in retrospect. You know, obviously, like everybody else, our, our customer, customer behavior completely shifted. People were in somewhat of a state of panic and, and not really sure economically what, what's happening. We didn't have sports for a while, which, you know, we were as, as fans, we were lost without sports. And so, you know, in the beginning, of course, it was, it was just uncertainty. And we, the, the NBA bubble in, in uh, Orlando started in July and playoffs in August. But by April, we had already committed to e-commerce and, and really doubling down. In the early stages of the pandemic, we, we had a decent amount of inventory. So we didn't have that we were sitting on. So we didn't have the shipment issues that a lot of folks dealt with in the beginning that caught up with us later in the year. But, you know, I I would say that 2020 for us e-commerce wise generally was very successful. We had, we grew up a lot. We had a lot of growth internally. We we grew up a lot. Our operations grew up a lot. You know, it, it just forces everyone to solve problems that did not exist before, whether it's marketing, fulfillment, you know, being able to try to we we had to launch our our fifth and final vice jersey was launched in December before the NBA season had restarted 
mm-hmm. which is unconventional. Typically, you want to have people watching the players wearing the jerseys when you go and you go to market. And we also had some pretty wild shipping delays at that point. Some customers had to wait, you know, between two and five months to get their jersey that they purchased Christmas time. So that that really created that presented a real challenge and and you know kudos to our our team and leadership but we we came out on top and and it was a very successful year for us you know there were there were pros and cons so i've spoken about some of the cons some of the the challenges but we also did have as i mentioned a historic playoff run finals run when the world is watching everyone you know no one's had sports for for months and and it's just such a an area of comfort for fans to just be able to mm-hmm. sit back and kind of tune into sports um, so the world was watching and our team happened to make a historic run. And that certainly was a nice shot in the arm for retail and presented an opportunity that I personally, in my four years, that was the most success we'd ever had on the team, team side of the, the business, which, which, you know, impacts mar- market conditions considerably, as you can imagine. So that was a big opportunity for us. We also, we also understood that the value, we, we learned the value of agility and it's not just a matter of being flexible, but be like, the willingness to be agile, um, not just the capacity, but the willingness like to to be able to um, have confidence in our data, have confidence in ourselves when we're facing these kind of turbulent times and to really take calculated risks, but bold risks and to you know double down when the opportunity seems right, um, which at certain points during the pandemic, it did for during the finals run during that fifth and final Jersey launch. Uh, we couldn't shy away from those moments and we didn't. And you know we were we were better for it, and like you said, there even though the this we had the bubble, you know, NBA restarted in the bubble, and then it it restarted with no fans at the end of the year in December. You know, not having fans in the arena is a, a big impact to the business, as you can imagine, even beyond ticket sales, which is and food and beverage, which is you know the the most obvious from a retail perspective. You think about going to a, a basketball game. Before the game, during halftime, and after the game, the arena store is packed. I mean, there's a line to get in. So whatever percentage of our, our retail sales that come from the, the brick-and-mortar store you know, uh, around the arena and in the arena, those are cut off. So even just not having people, 20,000 people filing in and out of the arena 40-plus times a year presents you know, a hit to retail. And so for e-commerce to be able to shoulder that and to actually grow during that time frame um, was really valuable for the business to present that cash flow opportunity while a lot of other revenue streams were pretty much you know in a in a holding pattern. Yeah, I can imagine that it it gives you know opportunities and challenges. Um, I think it gives just a certain credibility and um, yeah, it really highlights the significance of e-commerce as a channel. Um, for the business might also bring some new eyeballs on that as well, maybe some some additional scrutiny. But in the end, it sounds like you really stepped into it. I'm just wondering, you were talking about that kind of different timing on the on the jersey launch. Was was that a conscious decision, or was that a, what exactly led to that? So the the NBA ultimately dictates when the jerseys get launched with with Nike. It's it's a partnership. So, but we you know we have a, a certain range that we can operate in. They want uniformity when you know the NBA launches City Edition. It's ju- not just the Miami Heat, so they wanted uniformity there. So we had a certain range we could operate within, and it was this awkward kind of balance that the NBA had to strike, and a tough decision for them, which was you know do we do we wait until the season starts, which was December twenty second, I believe, so too late to buy for Christmas, or do we capitalize on holiday shopping and launch before the season actually starts? And mm-hmm. so that was the decision they made, um, which was, again, just a challenge for us. I mean, our fans still were expecting a jersey. They were still, it was Vice. So like, you can't miss with Vice, but certainly launching a jersey prior to the season restarting. And, and then on top of that, knowing that you may not receive your jersey for four or five months presented a challenge. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was, it was uncomfortable to try to operate in those, in those circumstances. It certainly wasn't ideal. But again, with whether it was like technology, user experience, customer support, we found ways to assuage concerns, keep the excitement high, and you know, ultimately launch a jersey without our number one marketing tool, which is our our team wearing the jersey and being televised nationally. Well, it's definitely a tough decision, but it it makes a lot of sense just being able to capture that that holiday um, demand or not. So. 
maybe we can can zoom out a little bit. Like we're talking there about about 2020, uh, 2020 and the challenges that came up there and the success. But generally, what what kind of promotional challenges or rhythms do you face across the year, across the season? How do you approach those? You know, whether it's launches or having to do with player performance, what kind of things do you see? Yeah, um, you know, we from from an e-commerce perspective, we we're in a very volatile environment. If our team performs poorly over a stretch of time, we see that come back in the numbers. If the opposite is true, we see that come in with the numbers. So, you know, there's as a marketer, performance marketer, there's this there's this challenge where, you know, when when the wind is is in your sails, all the KPIs look good. I mean, CPAs mm-hmm. are low, C- CTRs are high, things are happy, we're all high-fiving. But when it's the off-season, when you're not in the the eye of the media, or even worse, when your team isn't performing well and fan sentiment and morale can kind of be down in the dumps, how do you, you know, how do you perform then? What when the wind is in your face, how's it going? So so there's these, you know, it's it's not as binary as that, but there's basically two times of the season when things are going well or or not. And that, that's also true for player performance. So I mentioned that Tyler Hero Snarl T. I mean, he had an individual historic performance in a, a heightened moment, a very important moment in the finals. And, and as I mentioned, that presented an opportunity to activate on that specific performance. So those individual performances happen at, of course, unexpected times throughout the year, which, which you know, we have to be as reactive um, and quick as we can. But then, of course, there, there is, you know, the kind of expected ebbs and flows of the season, just with pure seasonality, knowing when the biggest games of the year are going to be, you know, when the most media attention's on us, et cetera. So it, it definitely is interesting trying to trying to shine uh, during the low times and not to, not to get too high during the good times because we understand that team performance is the ultimate driver of market conditions. So you know we can never get too high or too low, but it's especially important to be able to understand the impact the, of marketing efficacy so that we can extract the brand halo and the team performance from that and really understand what's driving performance versus what is piggybacking on team performance. Um, so that's been a really interesting challenge for me to try to unpack over the last four years. Yeah, it's a, it's a certain kind of an of an attribution dilemma. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then you know we also we also have like right now it's one of the biggest challenges is how do we get fans back in the arena? Consumer confidence is really all over the place. I mean, there are some people who we just had a music festival here out uh, outdoors at the Miami Dolphins Stadium, and it was it was packed. But it's also challenging to get people, you know, in enclosed arenas still. Um, so it's it's a bit it's a bit all over the place. Um, you know, we're, we're still in the pandemic. Uh, I don't think we can quite quite look uh, retrospectively yet. And so so how how we get customers back in the arena, how we afford experiences that makes everyone comfortable and gives them that you know just that that old feeling of being in in a room with twenty thousand screaming fans. Um, that's something we're all looking forward to, and and that's going to be the challenge this next year. Is how do we kind of get back to that that sense of of uh, you know having having a, a, a rocking crowd, a packed arena, um, and offering that experience that we're all used to, and that we all have those emotional connections to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm totally looking forward to this kind of return turn normality as well. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we all are. But it's it's definitely it's a really interesting challenge, and yeah. So we were talking about kind of parsing the you know the team performance and the the channel performance, uh, where of course there's this interconnectedness. But you know, from what I understand, there's there's a lot of other kind of um, data points that uh, Miami Heat has available, and uh, I'm wondering what significance does BI have for your your work at the Heat? It's something that you put a priority on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And not not just me. That's at the top, yeah. starting with our CEO. We we actually have our, our own in-house BI team and and they've built their own data warehouse, data lake, and and we're actually working with other teams. We work with the Milwaukee Bucks, we work with the NBA. So they're now our technically our customers, clients, um, or partners. And and so this has been from a development uh, perspective, this has been a, a really core focus of the Miami Heat, building out that arm. And and I would say you know it's it it initially began as an operational investment and vision, 
and it's becoming more and more translated to you know the marketing and and uh, marketing side of the of the business. And so it's a matter of connecting a lot of the marketing intelligence with the business intelligence and to be able to establish that harmony there so that so that there's interplay between the two. So you know business is feeding marketing and also marketing is informing the business. Um, so that's really, you know, when I work with them, that's that's what my focus is is with is you know if they if they uh, identify a trend or have a hypothesis about a certain you know fan behavior or or a certain product that might appeal to a certain segment, I have the laboratory to be able to test that out and to validate it or you know um, or debunk it. Um, and there have been a lot of a lot of learning opportunities. You know, I mentioned a lot of folks at the Heat have been here for 20, 30 years, and you know when you have fresh legs, as they call it in basketball, when you have you know new people showing up like myself. You get to challenge some of those internal biases or those those kind of like established understandings of who your fans are, what products they want, what experiences they seek, and we can challenge that with data. And that's what's so exciting is that there's a willingness in the Miami Heat to adapt based on what the data tells us. So that keeps us on our toes and it keeps us evolving and and hopefully one step ahead of our fans, making sure that whatever they want, we already know that they want it and we're offering that to them. And of course, you know, business and marketing work hand in hand to achieve that. Mm. Yeah, I really like that answer. And also this this willingness to listen is um, and, and to learn and act is so important because, it, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think that there are dashboards out there that get created for the sake of being a dashboard or, or so on. And um, there needs to really be a willingness to to reflect sometimes critically and, you know, to be able to turn over assumptions, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world, but that's really that's really the purpose of the whole of the whole exercise. And I definitely I just think it's so important to align marketing with with other, with broader business objectives, and that it's not in its own silo or doing its own thing, um, because you know then things are going to make a lot more sense for everyone else in the organization, like from the CFO to whomever, when just everybody's everybody's moving in the same direction. At the end there, you were talking a bit about, you know, anticipating uh, the the demands of, of fans and getting ahead of fans, getting close to fans, talking about turning over some demographic assumptions as well. So these whole audience topic, it gets more and more complicated every year, or sometimes feels like every month. I, I listened to a presentation you gave at a conference, I think it was hosted by falcon.io. You talked about the tension between privacy and personalization, and you were saying that you see personalization as a means to an end. It's so often trotted out as like this nirvana or this end state personalization, but you're saying that that personalization is a means to an end and the real goal is relevance. Could you elaborate on that? How do you distinguish between personalization and relevance? How can we solve for relevance in the end? Yeah, so, you know, this just to to kind of add add some context to that to that conference this was uh I want to say early April so mm. in the midst of iOS 14 uh chaos and and so it was a you know a, an important topic and and of course we're not we're we're just at the beginning of data reform data privacy reform so you know i i was i was trying to kind of establish this idea that that relevance is the ultimate goal and in the last i don't know i guess 10 years or so through a lot of marketing automation and and you know AI technologies, machine learning, all those fancy uh, acronyms. We've we've really shifted the shifted the focus to personalization, which is great. Uh, I mean, I see it as a cheat code to achieving relevance. It's not the only way to achieve relevance, but in many ways, it is. It gets you to the finish line in the fastest, most efficient way possible. So it cuts through a lot of the the hard work to achieve relevance, but it certainly isn't the only way to 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 get to that to that goal. So now that personalization is being impacted by, of course, the data privacy reform, um, it certainly isn't going away, but it it's being chopped off at the legs in many ways. You know, my my call, my my uh, recommendation to to the audience was we need to set our eyes back on the real prize, which is relevance, and not be not be concerned or panicking if personalization doesn't seem as as viable as it once did for for your marketing strategy, and of course, there's other ways to achieve relevance. I personally think contextual is one that does not get enough attention. You know, when we're when we don't have fancy tools 
to hyper personalize and you know everything being dynamic, there are some there are some interesting things you can do with contextual uh, relevance to to just catch people's attention and catch them at the right time. I think I think uh, you know day parting used to be something that was really exciting, and then it just became inefficient. Like it was a lot more efficient to just open up your marketing activities to every hour of the day and let the machine find the right person at the right time in the right place. But taking a step back and removing the artificial intelligence from the decision-making process and allowing for the human intelligence, the decisions we make to kind of take the front seat there and hold the steering wheel. You know, I think there are some some really clever ways to tap into re- understanding where people are and what time of the day it is when you're even reaching them. And of course, what platform they're on and, and what they what they are visiting that platform for, like what the purpose is, what their intended experience is. And if you just hyper-focus on any one of those contextual factors, there's a lot of room for, for finding that relevance and cutting through the noise. You don't necessarily have to display an ad that has the end user's name or, mm-hmm. or preferred product on it to achieve that relevance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting statement. And yeah, bearing in mind that, that relevance is, is really the goal here. And there are certain concessions that we're going to have to make uh, along the way in the, in the name of privacy, which I think is, is totally valid. As a when I'm in a position of a consumer, which is happening all the time, I get that. Um, I also think that there are going to be other kinds of technological offers um, made by by platforms where we won't have a lot of transparency into into what's going on there, and we'll have to learn how to work with those. Whether it's Google Analytics offering model data instead of based on uh, s- sample data or other kinds of data, um, we're going to have to get a certain level of comfort with that and a certain level of comfort with, as you mentioned before, human intelligence. But there's one thing I wanted to raise as well. I, I saw you had recently posed a question on LinkedIn. Can we all stop pretending there are secrets to advertising? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It felt like maybe a low-key rant really happened, <laughs> or I don't know. Uh, what what did you have in mind with that question? I, I I don't know exactly in that day what provoked that low key rant, but you definitely detected the tone correctly. You know, I think I think generally speaking, there there are a lot of specialized industries out there, uh, marketing included, advertising included, where there almost seems to be a sense of of smoke and mirrors, where we we try to we try to make things seem more complicated and and complex than they necessarily are. I think the principles of marketing are of good marketing are pretty straightforward and they haven't really changed over time mm. because like I mentioned at the start of the call they really stem back to psychology and c- the way we communicate and connect with the world around us and you know especially being on the agency side for so long sometimes you're exposed whether it's a vendor or even agencies I've worked for or, you know with other like you know, working with other other agencies uh, collaboratively Sometimes you just have that sense that people are trying to use bigger words and make things sound more mysterious than than they really are. And and you know, oftentimes the word "secret," these sensational uh, terms, are used to attract a user and and or a potential client, and ultimately make them seem as if make it seem as if there's you know. In this case, I, I said there are these secrets to advertising. So mm-hmm. you know, sign up for my class, and you'll find out the top ten secrets to social media marketing. You can Google it. There's no secrets. I mean, everyone's a consumer. Everyone knows what works with them. So certainly a low key rant, and and ultimately, I guess my criticism of of any any advertisers, marketers, or or salesmen, saleswomen out there uh, trying to make it seem like more than it is. Um, again, there's there's a lot of clever technology. There's a lot of intelligent strategy out there, and that's not to you know sim- oversimplify or reduce any of that any of that good work out there. Um, but we don't have to present intelligence or smart work as something mysterious and secretive. You know, I think transparency is something that we all owe to each other in this industry. Yeah, well, that's, that's well spoken. And I, I mean, there are times where I'm really impressed how collaborative the, the industry can be and, you know, open to exchange. But yeah, other times, other times not. Um, and that's something like... AI, for example, um, is getting used as a buzzword an awful lot mm-hmm. of machine learning. And it's it's not always clear what definition someone really has in mind with that, what capabilities they really bring forward with something like that. But that's an area that is, by and large, very 
open source. Um, there's really open source ethos in the AI community. It's really a field of, of academic research in so many regards. And we're going to see that kind of technology becoming more available, more plug and play. And I think that'll also help to kind of dispel the idea that there are, that there are secrets out there. Uh, because there are really yeah. there are, there are principles, and then there are maybe tactics to deploy or against those principles. Yeah, and I think this this idea of presenting marketing strategies as secrets or or something that's masked and mysterious often is is when you're speaking to someone who doesn't know better. Again, if I'm if I'm speaking with a lawyer or a doctor, they might use fancy words that just you know, underline the fact that I'm not a lawyer or a doctor. And there's probably a more simple way for you to explain to me what it is you're trying to get across, the, you know, across the table to me. And I think, that, again, the same is true with marketing. Like, we love our buzzwords. Sometimes you just got to break it down and talk to someone as if they're not a digital marketer, because oftentimes they're not. So, you know, it's easy to get caught into that, into that trap of, of trying to find the, the secrets of marketing to apply to your business. Um, the secret is it's hard work and and smart thinking. Well, here's a question that I ask all my guests. How would you define growth? What does good growth look like to you? And how do you identify unhealthy growth? And I'll, I'll add a, a special twist here. What's your secret to success? For my top 10 secrets, you can, you can sign up for my blog now. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think, I think this is really important, especially as a performance marketer, I mean, we all know if you want to optimize for a certain KPI growth, you can, and, and you can demonstrate growth, which may, may seem like you're accomplishing the task at hand or the, the business objective, when really it may not be servicing the business in the most sustainable and, and healthy way. Um, so I, I love this question, and I do, I've enjoyed listening to your other episodes and hearing how other, um, other folks, other guests have, have answered this, and I'll try to while I agree with many of them, I'll try to introduce some new ideas. So I think I'll start with healthy growth. I'll start with the glass half full. I think healthy growth ultimately benefits the business. You know, we're talking about, of course, in the context of marketing. Uh, marketing can grow without it impacting the business, and and so healthy growth has has a, a correlation between marketing growth and business growth. So I'll start there. Um, it expands the business opportunity. I also think there's there's a key. Key secret to growth. Now, a, a, a very important consideration for growth is patience. Um, sustainable and si- scalable growth is, I'll say, like you know, handmade stone ground. It's not always um, immediate and direct response, and 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 it's not always um, ballooning right in front of your eyes. Sometimes there's slow growth, and you know, it's just because the the the, the crop is not is not growing above the ground doesn't mean there isn't growth happening under the soil. So I think patience is really, really important, especially being on the agency side. You see so many clients who don't, don't see the growth happening in the, in the areas they're looking for it. And they kind of, they pull the plug too early before, before the little seedling was able to sprout and, you know, for them to, to experience the growth they were looking for. So patient growth, I think is part of healthy growth. And then I would say it's it's also two way. It's not just about the business. You know, it's I, I think it's as a brand from a, a growth perspective, it's a matter of growing the the significance or the role you play in your customer's life, whether it's a product or service. You know, if if you are you know if you have compassionate customer service, if you're offering content that's that's valuable beyond the scope of your product offering, you're just adding value to their lives, giving back to the community and those around you. You know, all of that comes back in in you know, in one way or another. So, uh, you know, getting a little bit far further away from from just pure performance marketing, but ultimately, you know, I, I don't think that growth is always quantifiable, um, and certainly not always immediate. And and then the last the last uh, way I'll approach this is a callback to what I mentioned earlier about something I really admire with the Miami Heat culture, and that's the permission to fail and learn. You know, I think a lot of growth happens by learning what is not right, whether it's you know, um, a certain tactic or strategy, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as important to learn what doesn't work as it is to, to find what does work. Cause it just kind of narrows your focus on where the growth potential exists to hit on unhealthy growth. I think this will be a little bit more straightforward, you know, optimizing for a KPI output output that isn't necessarily 
uh, an indication of success. Any kind of unfocused growth, if it's a bit scattered, if it's a bit, you know, just kind of chasing a, a goal that doesn't ladder up to an objective. And then that idea of artificial growth, like you just, you know, you can keep stoking the fire with dry leaves, but that's, you know, it'll keep the fire going. You'll be warm in the moment, but that's not a real fire. So you want to build something longer term, you know, you, you really, you know, growth has to be something that is building blocks is sustainable, you know, back to a marketing term, full funnel. You can't just sit at the finish line and retarget, retarget, retarget and, and get your quote unquote growth, KPI growth. And then, you know, lastly is probably the scariest type of unhealthy growth, which is um, misguided data-driven growth. If you're chasing a mirage, you think you see an opportunity, uh, either it's bad data or poor interpretation of it, and you invest maybe in a, you know, honest, sustainable way to achieve that growth, but it's, it's just ultimately misguided. You're either running away from a ghost or chasing a mirage and, and it's just not going to lead you to the place you're expecting. Yeah, the, the, that one is that's really um, a bit scary there because you know you could be moving forward with the best of intentions and think that you're making right. a right decision, and that that can connect back to the idea of optimizing for the wrong KPIs as well. I mean, I think there was an article in the Harvard Business Review. It's at least this is where I learned the terminology. I could have a broader broader history than that, but they talk about this phenomenon of KPI surrogation, which is something that I find really interesting because you you basically take a metric that you have available and you accept it as a proxy for something that you maybe can't measure or don't have available. It's it's the best fit, which can be okay. Sometimes that's all that we can do, but it's very important that we keep this this boundary in our minds that this is not actually the thing that we really want to to optimize for. And and this the surrogation takes place when we no longer recognize the difference. And I mean, it would be in my opinion that this happens a lot when it comes to return on ad spend. That's uh, exactly think, where my mind went. Mm, it, uh, return on ad spend is in some ways a beautiful metric because that return can be measured, you know, in a more accurate description is, you know, conversion value per cost. And, and because conversion value could be anything, it could be your profit. Um, so in that way, it's really flexible, but you know, it's typically we're talking about revenue and advertising spends. And it's just this very, it's kind of a, an echo chamber in that way. Yeah, um, especially I, when, you know, when we're talking about measurement and attribution, mm-hmm. it can be useful to your point about the conversion value being the profit, but uh, our profit margin. But, um, you know, when we look at, at optimizing for those KPIs, not just measuring off of them, but, but allowing the, the platforms to optimize for them, you can end up, you know, top heavy, bottom heavy, and completely out of balance if you're optimizing for a single KPI like that. So, you know, especially with the blurred lines between optimization and attribution or measurement, having mm-hmm. a singular KPI like ROAS to kind of guide both can be can lead to unhealthy growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think for sure it's better to have, you know, than at least a, a multi-dimensional view or some multiple KPIs working together. I even I even like advertising cost of sale a little bit better as a metric. It's the it's the inverse. It's not really any different, but it's somehow much more descriptively named or straightforward because no you know, you might hear return on ad spend and confuse that for return on investment or profit. Sure. But if you're advertising cost of sale, it's perfectly clear what's being described and you won't you'll you won't confuse that. You'll understand it as a as an efficiency metric. Just yeah, yeah, I like that. But uh, I really loved both of these metaphors that you had, um, like the the um, this plant that you need to grow, where it you know you might not see the growth occurring, but um, something is happening just below the soil, and that's even the case with when we talk about exponential growth or exponential trends. You don't know that something is exponential until all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa, that's exponential!" Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, this is this is totally right. And you also had a, a similar related metaphor of like burning leaves instead of of logs or wood. And yeah, it's a it's kind of the same thing. Like we would just compare that to like the a plant needs to have roots. You can't just like right. You can't over fertilize. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it, I, I really like this way of describing it. And 
um, definitely a value add on, on the other people. I think I've gotten a lot of great answers to that question, but I really appreciate yours. So thanks for sharing it. Um, one thing that I definitely wanted to cover with you, and we mentioned this, you kind of teasered it earlier in the discussion, and we've talked a bit about the culture at the Miami Heat, but what would you say are the workforce skills and the cultural attributes to boil it down that digital companies need to outpace the market? Yeah, I think, I think it really starts with being extremely clear with the value proposition, with what you're really good at and, and just being exceptional at the simple things. You know, there's, you were talking about AI and machine learning and, and all the, the kind of fancy terms that, that give us an indication of what's being sold or what's being proposed, but don't necessarily define it. And I think, I think there's, there's a need for, for transparency and clarity um, in the marketplace across the board, whether it's an agency client relationship, a, a you know technological uh, vendor, and or or a business to consumer relationship via digital. Um, so I think it's it's really a matter of of establishing those that sense of honesty and humility and being a good listener, being willing to change some of the the attributes we spoke about, and and being bold enough not to just kind of sit back and and you know just become stagnant and and just mm. rest on your laurels. You know, and, and and I would say the last thing is is to like cut the cut the fluff. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff in in digital and and even though the terms are fancy and and there's a lot of you know very uh like 2030 which doesn't it's not so far away now but 2030 technology and like sci-fi stuff happening here um, at the end of the day we're talking about we're talking about humans, and I think there's like a sense of humanity in marketing that, that we've lost a little bit. And and you know across the board, I think we need to just kind of bring things back down to ground level, um, and understand that there are humans at, at the other end of the device. There was I forget which documentary it was, I'm the one on Cambridge Analytica or one of those, but it was it was discussing about how you know we we relate we we refer to the humans as users and. You know, there was a, a company I worked with, White Castle was the first brand I worked with back in Zimmerman. And they taught me something really, really valuable, a really valuable lesson about this. They would not allow me or any of us to refer to their fans, their customers as our target audience. It just sounded like we were trying to prey on them. So they mm -hmm. were our community. They were our aspirational audience. And, you know, this comes down to semantics, but this is even internal conversations. Like they didn't like us calling them that. And, and there's something really beautiful there, you know, like really respecting the customer, respecting the end user and seeing the humanity in the process. So I think I, I probably got a little, uh, a little high level there and, and far away from ground level. But, but I think there's, you know, like there's an essence of, of humanity that I think just goes a long way, whether you're, whether you're trying to sell something or you're trying to partner with someone or you're trying to present a, a digital experience just to treat people with respect and, and, you know, assume they're intelligent, assume they're, they're, you know, really engaged in the process. And as opposed to trying to prey on people, try to engage with them and kind of encourage their participation. Well, I think that's really a really beautiful statement. And it's just also reminded me, I mean, I've seen there were these studies that um, like marketers and advertisers are one of like the least trusted pr professions out there, like up there with lawyers or something. And I think there's a huge misconception there. I mean, every time I'm just often so inspired by the the stories and the really the ethical perspectives and the values um, that I hear about when I uh, talk with people on this show. And this is another case of that. And yeah, I just think it's it's totally right what you said there. So thank you for sharing that with us. I'll ask you, let's see, just two two more questions. What What's next in digital marketing? What trends are you watching? Um, I, I really have my eye on on the the data privacy reform. I'll I'll go back to that. You know, I think I think there's something I hope um, and I anticipate that the one of the macro level um, changes that will come from this is going to be a new level of engagement um, from customers, and and it's an idea that is not novel or ahead of us. It's actually uh, behind us and we've lost the way a little bit. One of my favorites, Seth Godin, one of the best ever to do it, 
uh, wrote a book in either like 1999 or 2001, certainly pre the term social media or, you know, digital media. And, and the book was permission marketing. Yeah. And the idea is that, you know, you're not, um, you know, you're, you're actively engaging the, the customer, the customer is letting you into their world. And I think that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. You know, we're, we're on a path to, to find that again. And it's kind of a marketing nirvana to what the customer is going to like welcome me into their house. Like they're going to, they're going to tell me what they want. I don't have to guess and learn. And I think we're, we, we can be on our way there. And, and I think, you know, this data privacy reform, like is, is what's going to bring us there. You know, I would say people are right now we're, we're in that like first stage of the, of the evolution as consumers, where a lot of us are becoming uh, conscious to data privacy. And, you know, it was just, four or five years ago that most people were willing to dole out very important information for a, a you know $5 discount on their purchase because they didn't understand the repercussions. They didn't understand the potential bad actors. I would say we're still in the stage where people don't quite understand how a lot of this works. I mean, I still have friends and family who truly believe that they're being listened to on their phones and that is how their ads are so relevant. As a marketer, come on, give us a little more credit, right? Like we're not... <laughs> There's there's so much more listening that that is happening outside of just what you're saying on phone calls or or when your phone is around you in private conversations, whether or not that's happening. This this idea of consumers waking up to the to the concept of being listened to in a very invasive way is where we're at right now. So this this level of consciousness and almost paranoia is where we're at right now, um, which which is being experienced with you know distrust and you know of course the privacy reform is helping curb that distrust. And, and I think the next stage, which will, will kind of take us closer to that permission marketing idea is, is that, you know, we're going to see that consumers are looking for brands to engage with using that, like built on that foundation of trust, a two-way exchange. So not something that is happening to the consumer, but something that the consumer is dictating or even leading that, that relationship with the brand, um, a much more active and engaged uh, relationship and dynamic there. So that excites me. I mean, we can be we can be bombarded with advertisements and market marketing, you know, messages that are, you know, even subconsciously affecting us and and certainly consciously affecting us. But what really excites me is to kind of move all of that aside and and to have a consumer who who really truly wants to connect with a brand, who wants to let them into their world and to to establish a permission-based relationship there, which as a marketer can be much more sustainable and much more cost-effective. Um, and as a consumer is a lot more comfortable and a lot more value-driven. Um, so this really excites me. It feels like this can really restore a lot of the balance in the, the marketing universe, so to speak. And you know, Seth Godin saw this coming. And you know, I, I really hope this is the direction we go in because it's, it's a lot healthier. Mm. Yeah, well stated, and I, I, yeah, I often reflect back on on that, that concept from Seth Godin of permission based uh, marketing, and it, it really was prophetic. That's yeah, I mean, I look, can... people, people, most social accounts now are are private. We want quieter email inboxes. We only want people who we know to text and call us. So there's a lot more, you know, we're a lot more cagey with our digital footprint and digital accessibility these days. So we're going to, as consumers, need to actively grant permission to those we trust as, you know, on, on the brand side. Um, so I, I just, I love the idea of trust and value leading, guiding the relationship between brands and consumers. And, and I'm optimistic that that's where we're headed. Definitely. Well, I want to thank you for, for joining me today, um, Matthew. And I would have one last question for you, which is if there's any shout outs that you want to give. Oh, man. Um, I just want to say shout out to Heat Nation. I mean. Yeah. Seriously, like, like I'm, I'm a Heat fan, so it's been, it's been a struggle, you know, having a, a, a season that's been paused and then restarted, and then no fans, and now fans can come back, and, and really, they, they've been, our fans have been so incredible during this really unconventional time between franchise team and, uh, and fan experience, and, and yeah, truly, like it's. It's really amazing to see that even when the experience and the product is so severely disrupted um, and the world stands still and there's you know so much uncertainty, the role that sports plays in their in people's lives and to see that when basketball comes back, when the team you know comes back, how that is embraced by the community. And it was 
you know, sometimes you don't like they say you don't know what you what you have until it's gone, kind of thing. And yeah. and as a fan, I felt that. And and as a as an employee of the Heat, I also felt that on the other end too. So it's just it's a really special bond that the we talk about brand consumer relationships. When the brand is a sports team, it's an especially you know emotional and really deep rooted bond that you have. So it's it's been they've been very patient, and I really hope we have packed arenas all of next year. Um, and hopefully another finals run. I, I definitely hope that too. And I, yeah, it's really, it's amazing. People identify with their teams and that's, that's so cool. So I just want to thank you again, Matthew, for joining us. It was all so interesting what you had to say. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. And uh, looking forward to uh, listening, listening into the rest of your, of your episodes. They've all been really, really insightful. And uh, I've certainly learned a lot and, We'll continue tuning in. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce. To learn more, visit smarter-ecommerce.com. Smarter.